singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to arise. We are back and have so many things to talk about, but let's uh, let's do an obituary, which we normally do in our third segment. But let's go straight to talking about the late Senator Robert Byrd. Robert Byrd passed away on June 28th at 92, having been the longest serving U.S. senator in history. Byrd became a senator in 1959. And I remember in the 1970s seeing the Senate in action and observing Robert Byrd down there on the floor. Byrd was quite the wheeler dealer over the years, doing his best to uh, defend the power of the Senate while at the same time being an expert at pork barrel politics and returning lots of our tax dollars to his home state of West Virginia. And as is so often the case, some of the best writing about Byrd that I saw comes from The Economist, which said, quote, The Roman Senate fascinated Mr. Byrd almost as much as the American. When it declined, the Republic fell. And why had it declined? Because it had become passive, failed to raise its voice, and especially because it had handed meekly to Caesar and Sulla the power of the purse strings. Mr. Byrd therefore spent his career learning, describing, and expertly applying the rules that kept the Senate a force in government. He was constantly alert, both to executive overreach and to weaknesses in his own beloved chamber. Dignity was his byword. His courtesy was instinctive. His thank you notes reliably there the next day. The point of all this, though, was to uphold the worth of the Senate. At meetings with the President, he insisted on taking a staff person because the President had one and the branches were equal. He grappled masterfully with 11 presidents and liked them less as he got older. George Bush Jr., he detested, a reckless and arrogant man who, on Iraq, overrode the war-declaring powers of Congress while the Senate stood pitifully by. In this terrible show of weakness, Mr. Byrd wrote, the Senate left an indelible stain upon its own escutcheon. And in fact... In 2003, as the U.S. ramped up for war, we quoted from Robert Byrd's memorable speech on the floor of the Senate, which I'd now like to return to, at least in a few excerpts. Said Senator Byrd on March 19, 2003, I believe in this beautiful country. I have studied its roots and gloried in the wisdom of its magnificent constitution. I have marveled at the wisdom of its founders and framers. Generation after generation of Americans has understood the lofty ideals that underlie our great republic. I have been inspired by the story of their sacrifice and their strength. But today, I weep for my country. The image of America has, been, the image of America has changed. Around the globe, our friends mistrust us, our word is disputed, our intentions are questioned. Instead of reasoning with those with whom we disagree, we demand obedience or threaten recrimination. Instead of isolating Saddam Hussein, we seem to be isolating ourselves. We proclaim a new doctrine of preemption, which is understood by few and feared by many. We say that the United States has the right to turn its firepower on any corner of the globe which might be suspect in the war on terrorism. We assert that right without the sanction of any international body. As a result, the world has become a much more dangerous place. 
We flaunt our superpower status with arrogance. We treat UN Security Council members like ingrates who offended our princely dignity by lifting their heads from the carpet. Valuable allies are split. After war has ended, the United States will have to rebuild much more than the country of Iraq. We will have to rebuild America's image around the globe. The case this administration tries to make to justify its fixation with war is tainted by charges of falsified documents and circumstantial evidence. We cannot convince the world of the necessity of this war for one simple reason. This is a war of choice. There is no credible information to connect Saddam Hussein to 9-11. The Twin Towers fell because a worldwide terrorist group, Al-Qaeda, with cells in over 60 nations, struck at our wealth and our influence by turning our own planes into missiles, one of which would likely have slammed into the dome of this beautiful capital, except for the brave sacrifice of the passengers on board. This administration has directed all of the anger, fear, and grief which emerged from the ashes of the Twin Towers and the twisted metal of the Pentagon towards a tangible villain, one we can see and hate and attack. And villain he is, but he is the wrong villain, and this is the wrong war. If we attack Saddam Hussein, we will probably drive him from power, but the zeal of our friends to assist our global war on terrorism may have already taken flight. When did we become a nation which ignores and berates our friends? When did we decide to risk undermining international order by adopting a radical and doctrinaire approach to using our awesome military might? How can we abandon diplomatic efforts when the turmoil in the world cries out for diplomacy? Why can this president not seem to see that America's true power lies not in its will to intimidate, but in its ability to inspire? Intelligent and inspiring words from Senator Robert Byrd, which unfortunately fell on deaf ears as the U.S. went to war that very day. That war continues. There's no end in sight. We talk about withdrawing, but so far the troops are not coming home. We have no objective. And indeed, the war itself appears to be ignored by the major media. And if all that wasn't bad enough, there are people that are itching to start a war now with Iran. Of course, at the moment, we have a war going on in Iraq and a war going on in Afghanistan. If you look on the map, what lies between them? Well, Iran. Let's talk about war in, uh, in Central Asia for a moment. Writing in the New York Times a couple weeks ago, Helen Cooper and David Sanger noted that in replacing General Stanley McChrystal with his boss and mentor, General David H. Petraeus, Barack Obama is sending a clear signal that the current war strategy will continue despite setbacks and growing public doubts. There's a real effort to ban doubts from the discussion. Uh, you may have noticed the comments by General Petraeus when he took over saying, We are in this to win. Noting we must demonstrate to the people and to the Taliban that Afghan and ISAF forces are here to safeguard the Afghan people and that we are in this thing to win. That is our clear objective. I wish he was a little more specific, don't you? In fact, when Republican Party Chairman Michael Steele, of all people, expressed doubts about the winnability of the war, he's been slammed by John McCain and others. Noted Nancy Youssef, writing for McClatchyDC.com, amid calls for the Obama administration to make more changes in its strategy and leadership in Afghanistan, top U.S. officials said that while their strategy may be troubled, they think it's salvageable. Article refers to friction between the Defense Department and State Department uh, officials in Kabul. They conceded that the war has proved more difficult than they expected, but said it's still winnable, and they stood behind the administration's July 2011 deadline to, to start 
withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. Said uh, Defense Secretary Robert Gates, I do not believe we are bogged down. I believe we're making some progress. It is slower and harder than we anticipated. When Russian President Dmitry Medvedev was in uh, Washington uh, last week, he was asked whether, given Russia's experience in Afghanistan, he thought any foreign country could, quote, win, unquote, there, and whether he'd shared any advice with President Obama. Said Medvedev, in a rather awkward answer through a translator, I try not to give pieces of advice that cannot be fulfilled. Of course, you may have noticed right about this time that uh, there's been an announcement that geologists inspecting Afghanistan have noted that it's got trillions of dollars worth of mineral reserves. Noted the economist, fanciful Pentagon talk of Afghanistan's huge mineral wealth smacks of desperation. Discussing the uh, change of commanders, the magazine said, if generals have not always done well by politicians, the politicians have far more often let down the generals. George Bush and his defense chiefs neglected the war in Afghanistan while they devoted themselves to bungling the war in Iraq. Of course, uh, sounding off at the end of uh, June, CIA Director Leon Panetta said that al-Qaeda was on the ropes. Noting the U.S. has driven al-Qaeda into hiding and undermined its leadership, but is struggling to oust its primary sympathizers, the Taliban, from Afghanistan. We're reminded of something we've talked about in this program I don't know how many times, that back in 1968 when the war in Vietnam was going badly and Lyndon Johnson pretty much made Defense Secretary Robert McNamara the fall guy and replaced him with Clark Clifford, incoming Defense Secretary Clifford sent a memo around the Pentagon asking for two pieces of information about the war in Vietnam. He wanted to know, one, what our objectives were, and two, how he intended to meet those objectives. They couldn't provide him with an answer. They could not provide him with an answer to question two because they could not answer question one. We did not have objectives in Vietnam. We don't have objectives in Iraq at this point, and we don't appear to have objectives in Afghanistan. So when they say the war is winnable, they do need to be a little more specific. I.e., what is winning in their minds? Because right now we're sacrificing American lives and spending ungodly sums of money that could be used down in the Gulf of Mexico and elsewhere in the U.S. to provide, say, health care on uh, military posturing. What do you think? Why don't you drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We'd like to hear from you. Anyway, I was surprised to note that uh, a book by Jesse Ventura, of all people, about American conspiracies looks to be excellent. Covering topic after topic that we've talked about here on Radio Parallax. And yes, we're going to try and get former Governor Jesse Ventura on this program. Meantime, we'd like to cite an editorial in the Sacramento Bee about Republican John Moss, who served 13 terms in Congress from Sacramento, 1952 to 1978, who, noted the Bee, authored and almost single-handedly championed the Freedom of Information Act for 12 years until it finally passed in 1966. Noted the paper, virtually every federal agency testified against the bill. As Bill Moyers, previous Radio Parallax guest, who was then White House press secretary, later rec recounted, Lyndon Johnson hated the very idea of the Freedom of Information Act, hated the thought of journalists rummaging in government closets and opening government files, hated them challenging the official view of reality. 
Yet, Moss was persistent, and the bill eventually passed the House on a 307-0 vote in June of 1966. John Moss had a simple idea. Americans should be able to get information in timely fashion without government staff questioning why they want the information and what they're going to do with it. We agree with the Sacramento Bee that the 4th of July is a time to celebrate the First Amendment and cite the achievements of former Representative John Moss. And we really should talk about on this program in the future. Well, I wanted to talk about some science on this show, so we've got a few minutes left in this segment. Let's, let's, let's grab a few quick items. New Scientist magazine notes that the first mission to Pluto has now passed a milestone. On June 14th, the NASA spacecraft New Horizons had covered half the distance to the dwarf planet. Despite New Horizons being the fastest object ever launched from Earth when it departed back in January of 06, it will still take another five years to get to Pluto. Sad to note that when it left five years ago, Pluto was still a planet. New scientists, ha- new scientists did have an article about uh, neutrinos changing phase and how this means they have mass, and I'm afraid I still don't understand all this. And in fact, the plot's thickened. Not only are there electron, muon, and tau neutrinos, said the magazine, results from the liquid scintillator neutrino detector, LSND, at Los Alamos National Laboratory, suggest that there might be a fourth flavor a sterile neutrino that is even less inclined to interact with ordinary matter than the others. Will someone out there who's a physicist please call us and help us with this one? Noted new scientist in one article about mass injections uh, from the sun. Article by David Shiga opened with, Ever think to check the space weather forecast? And we'd stop right there and say, Why, in fact, yes, we have. We've recommended it before. We'll recommend it again. The website spaceweather.com is full of interesting factoids. Talks about things erupting off the surface of the sun, potentially hazardous near-Earth asteroids, and when the aurora borealis is visible. The article talks about something that we'd mentioned in this program before, that even modest solar activity can play hell with terrestrial technology as is becoming clearer and clearer. Radio Parallax has been invited by someone over at PG&E to check out uh, some of the power grid and how power has moved around in Northern California. We're looking forward to that field trip, hopefully before the summer is out. And we'll probably have some questions about our transmission lines and their vulnerability to coronal mass injections from our sun. Stay tuned for that. How about this item? You know, airlines seem to be just determined to take pilots out of the cockpit. Naturally, we're citing another article from New Scientist that asks, Would you fly in an airliner knowing there are no pilots in the cockpit? This is no mere hypothetical question. The FAA this month kicked off what would be the first step in a journey toward the full automation of the airliners we all travel on. And yes, the ugly secret of the airlines is it's pretty much all automated. The pilots are a backup system. These days, you can get on an aircraft, a pilot can push a button, and from takeoff to landing, the entire journey can be automated, and sometimes is. My understanding is that they generally take the plane off and land it, but they don't have to. You can rest assured we're going to bring some pilots on this program to talk about this incredibly stupid idea. Can you imagine... If Captain Sullenberger had been somewhere else when that plane hit a bird over in New York, 
because I'm pretty sure that there is no computer program that says, oh yeah, in case of emergency, land on the Hudson. And of course, with no one in the cockpit, there's no one to look down and, you know, figure out how to dodge the boats. We'll have to bring back our aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zaravika, to discuss this. And you know, when we talked with General Charles Yeager on last week's program about, uh, about some of his adventures, he mentioned at one point that when they flew to Russia, that being he accompanying Jackie Cochran, he did the navigating. Not to say that General Yeager implied in any way that Jackie Cochran was not a good navigator. Uh, Jackie being female and all, in case you didn't know. I would point out that on my own initiative, I've decided to look into the matter of navigational differences between the sexes. In fact, we're going to devote most of our next segment to that topic. Stay tuned for that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.